You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 8th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hey, good to see you all again. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Andy Wilson. Andy, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Well, good evening, everyone. Hello. <laughs> I know... I know a fake British accent when I hear it. God damn it. She knows when a Brit is doing a fake British accent. She really knows that. Andy, yes. if you're British, and I think yes. you might be, I might you be. can say yes. Harry Potter, sir. I can say what? Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter. There you go. Ah, Harry, nice. I can't do it quite as badly as you, Jay. Sorry. I know. It's hard. Nobody <laughs> practice to be that bad. So, Andy, you are the host of the Incredulous podcast, which the, yes. that, that's the official podcast of the Merseyside Skeptics. Am I correct in saying that? Uh, I would say that the official podcast of the Merseyside Skeptics is the uh, is Skeptics with a K. We actually uh, produce three podcasts. Mine is another. There's another one called Be Reasonable, in which Michael Marshall attempts to be reasonable with people who disagree with him. Ah, and you are on the organizing committee for the Merseyside Skeptics. And uh, yeah, that's you right. also organize QED, which is an excellent uh, UK-based skeptical conference. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And um, I've been I've been with QED since uh, well, it started about five years ago, so I've been in right from the start. Wow, so five years of of conferences, but SGU has never been there. What's <gasps> up with that? What's up with well, that, Andy? Well, the SGU hasn't, but uh, at least one of your number has. Well, Steve Novella. Okay. That's right. I was. I, I guess that will work. I represented <laughs> we'll Rebecca. Accept it. Yeah. yeah but, you know, I'll be honest it. with you. You know, we have this big trip to Australia coming up. And, yeah. Um, I'm, I've been thinking that the next, after that, not soon after that, certainly, but probably the next big foreign trip we should make is the UK because the SGU has never done the UK. Oh, I think that would be absolutely awesome. Biblically. Absolutely awesome. There's a so lot of, lot of, lot of pent up, pent up demand for that, Steve. Yes. That's what I, that's what I said. So, you know, and you, I'll, you I'll, need to work on that. Okay, I'll have a I'll have a word with the entire British population. Excellent. <laughs> that's, that's what I was getting at. I'd just like to uh, also yes. say that the Skeptics Guide is partly to blame for my journey to Skeptic Land. Um, I know, I, I know, <laughs> I know that's not unique, but I found the astronomy cast first, and uh, I was trying to figure out what the hell rel- relativity meant, and I got hooked <laughs> on that show, and they mentioned the Skeptics Guide to the Universe. But in the first episode I listened to, you guys talked about the Merseyside Skeptic Society. Uh, I went along, and the rest is history. So thanks, everyone. Mm. Nice. Wow, that's awesome. You're quite we welcome. Did yeah, you did. you did. You definitely did, yeah. And I've been on your podcast a number of times. You have been a very, very valued contributor, in, contributor to Incredulous. We're very grateful, Jay, particularly for your jokes. I absolutely love doing it, and I will admit I've probably had – a lot to drink while I was doing your show. <laughs> I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it explains uh, a lot. <laughs> but Incredulous is a fun is a is a fun sort of comic satire panel show type thing, uh, which uh, usually tries to stay on the side of skepticism, but sometimes just becomes filthy. <laughs> yes, those two things that. aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah. Just a, a little more on QED, if if I can. The QED's. Um, I've said that it's been going for, for 2015 will be our fifth year. And that whole thing started because 
we wanted to create an event where everybody felt really, where everybody felt equal, you know, where speakers and attendees could interact. Uh, but really we wanted a really grassroots feel to it as well. Um, so QED is an event that we built a lot on the premise that we would want to attend it ourselves. Um, and that's kind of been our approach from day one. It's a lot of work. And would you agree it's uh, a, a reasonable financial risk as well? During a conference, always. Absolutely, yeah, especially at the beginning. And the first year we sold 340 tickets, and it felt like we'd sold each one individually. But to be fair, the headline act was some bloke called Novella. I'm not sure he was such a big draw. Yeah, yeah, I got to do better than that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we had 500 in 2014. There's people already uh, booked tickets from all over the world. We're really, really pleased with the way it's shaping up for the fifth year. And we've, we, we also try and keep the, uh, the ticket price low. So it's less than 100 quid for two days plus a free day on the Friday. Yeah. Nexus has a similar, you know, shape to our, to our growth. And, uh, we try to keep the cost down, even though we're probably having it in the most expensive city in the <laughs> yeah. world. This is great. It's fun that it's in New York City, but, uh, yeah. I know how you feel. You know, you have to work very hard to get people to come. And, uh, isn't it amazing though, the day that the conference starts and you see, like you see it happen and you're like, oh my God, I just worked for a year and this is awesome. I mean, that's the whole deal. I mean, we're a non-profit. Nobody makes anything out of it. It's organized and staffed by volunteers. There's six of us on the organizing committee. And uh, yeah, we really work hard together. So that's uh, Nicola Throp, Rico and Michael Marshall, also known as Marshall. Hear more about him later. Uh, Mike Hall, uh, Jeff Whelan and myself. We're an autonomous collective sourced from both Manchester Skeptic Society and Merseyside Skeptic Society. And uh, we work really, really well together and I'm really chuffed to work with all my colleagues. And like you said, the reflected glory uh, during the event is just an amazing experience. It's a great reward for us. And I have to say the entire SGU, and I'm talking now on behalf of the entire SGU, thanks QED because you guys oh. actually had a little bit of money left over this year and you oh, yes. very graciously donated it to our legal defense fund. Well, gracious is a great word for it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, we yeah, we appreciate No, we Thank were you. delighted to contribute to the legal fund. It's very much our policy to make QED a break-even event. And we invest as much as possible into the attendee experience. But to do that, we have to be financially prudent and conservative. So we always have a bit of money left over. And we either read, we, we give, we keep some of that back for cash flow and the rest we redirect to causes that resonate with our attendees. Um, we've, we've also supported Sense About Science, the National Autistic Society, the Good Thinking Society, and now we're supporting the SGU Legal Fund. I wish we could do more for you guys. Andy, you know what? I have a similar announcement. Nexus is proud to be operating at a loss for the last. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> We're so generous that we. I don't know if proud would be the word. <laughs> 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 Yeah. No, it's yeah. not. Yeah. It's we actually, we're always re very close to the line. We're actually very good at breaking even on that conference. Yeah. Actually, I think, Jay, we, we were going to lose money, but then we got a break on one of the rooms where there were some AV problems. And I think that pretty yeah, no, much that got did us bring to the break us back even. Out of, yeah, we, we got yeah, they gave us a case of one, soda. One room, one room <laughs> did it for us. Nice. God, well, is, so that is, is that tight for you guys? I feel lucky now. Well, oh, you know, yeah. part of it is, I mean, we do, we are deliberately lowballing the, the tickets. Like, we don't want to charge a lot. We're trying as hard as yeah. we can to keep the price down because we want yeah. it accessible to students. You know, we want people to yeah, Well, maybe that's not a good yeah. idea, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andy, let me ask you another question. Do you know who Meriwether Lewis is? Uh, yes. Excellent. Do you? 
Because he didn't do Jack in uh, in England, as far as I well, know. <laughs> well, in the sense that I may have peeked at his Wikipedia page before coming today. Because I said that's how everyone else it. knows. Yeah. When I read Merriweather, I, th- I thought he was a boxer anyway. So. <laughs> Uh, no, Meriwether Lewis, aka Mary, aka one half of Lewis and Clark, who are a fairly well-known duo in the United States. In fact, when I was a kid, I had uh, two rabbits All their albums. Oh. named Lewis and Clark until the day that Lewis got pregnant, at which point she became Lois. Still worked. <laughs> uh, Lewis and Clark were well-known for exploring much of the United States, uh, west of the Mississippi, of course, that in and of itself is of value to people who are interested in science and exploration. But I wanted to mention him today because on October 11th, 1809, he died under mysterious mm. circumstances. How probably, mysterious? Probably a ghost. Is probably a ghost. <laughs> That's so pretty mysterious. I'd yeah. Say. Now, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't that mysterious. Um, it was either a murder or a suicide. What happened is he was heading, uh, back to Washington, D.C., and he was traveling a road that was well known for being rife with pirates and various vagabonds and whatnot. Oh, murder's alley, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and taken the other route. That's a short, it's a shortcut. <laughs> Yeah, and he he stopped at a uh, an inn called a Grinder's Stand, which is quite Behave. a good sounds like a good place to get murdered. <laughs> and he had dinner there, and then he went to bed. And at some point in the early hours of October 11th, uh, people heard gunshots, and he was found uh, very badly injured. He had a gunshot. Uh, several gunshot wounds, including one to the head. Some reports state that his throat was slashed as well. And also there may or may not have been some money missing. And uh, there was really no other information. And it was immediately reported that he had been, um, that, that it was a suicide, actually. And that was what was reported by uh, the people who knew him best, including... Clark and Thomas Jefferson, but it's hard to say whether they were just relying upon initial reports or whether or not they were speaking to his actual mental state, which Clark had pointed out had been pretty erratic prior to his death. But no actual medical examiner, no doctor examined him until decades after his death, at which point he was exhumed. And there are some people who say that it looks more like a murder. There are other people who say that it was a suicide. And there doesn't really seem to be much to, uh, to say, you know, uh, with any kind of certainty one way or the other. Although it's funny because I was reading through the Wikipedia page on this and just reading the facts, I was like, oh, this is obviously a murder. But the same Wikipedia page says that most historians consider it to have been a suicide so i don't know it was a mystery but yeah i've read a couple of sources on it too see it, it sounds like the consensus is that it was a suicide but they say he shot himself in the forehead first and then in the chest yeah and who does that <laughs> well it's the, yeah it's actually a lot easier than you think you know really? it's you can oh. 
A lot of people actually shoot themselves in the head and miss their brain. What? There was a guy in my hometown. What? How? Yeah. When your hands, you know, tilts Their up. hand shakes or, yeah. yeah. Or you, you put your, your, your the gun to down. your temple, but if you're a little bit too low, you'll shoot like right under your, the, for your frontal lobes. Yeah. So people do that. They, they basically just go shoot under their, their brain and miss. Or, yeah, if you go in through the mouth. It can go like out a cheek or something like that. That's oh, yeah. wait. I, I thought in the mouth was like the one of the foolproof ways to do it. Yeah, I mean, if it's pointing the, the right way, yeah. yeah. So, Steve, for public for public service reasons, where is the best place to shoot yourself in the head? <laughs> you do have to know a little bit of neuroanatomy to make sure oh. that you get a nice clean kill. Wait, and, I have to study yeah. before I kill myself. You basically <laughs> know, you have, no, you just have to consult your physician. Well, some yeah, of the, the best thing to do is to go to your doctor and to say, I'm feeling suicidal. <laughs> Could you help me out? Yes, and then I they agree. They will that's, help you out in exactly the way you need. That's, that's what, I, that's correct. Now, what's funny <laughs> is some, some of the murder, uh, advocates say that, well, how could a marksman like Lewis botch his own suicide? Well, if you're drunk and depressed yeah. and you're doing something like shooting yourself, it's also probably something he's never done before. It's not like he could practice shooting yourself in the head. And again, probably wasn't a student of neuroanatomy. It's actually not hard to fail to kill yourself by shooting yourself in the head. So anyway, that argument doesn't hold water in my opinion. But it is sad. Another thing is he attempted suicide previously. So it's, it's not a stretch to say that this was a suicide. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and it is, it's a terrible loss because he, he, but you know, by all accounts, he was a pretty amazing guy and he and Clark did go on this uh, incredible adventure that still resounds today, you know, uh, a hundred years later. Uh, so, or almost two, 200 years later. 200. <laughs> yeah. yeah 200. Uh, sorry. I'm- <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I thought I was tired. <laughs> <laughs> Are Lewis and Clark famous in the UK? Do you guys know them, or is that really an American thing? No, I'd n- I'd never heard of them before I looked it up on Wikipedia. Uh, that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah. sour grapes for losing the war. <laughs> oh wait, sorry, did I say that out loud? Well, you know, for our non-American <laughs> listeners, Lewis and Clark uh, were the first people to uh the first white europeans yes. <laughs> to uh, travel to the pacific coast and uh they completed basically it was a two-year i think expedition yeah. and uh they were accompanied by a native american woman named sacagawea uh who helped guide them who was only she was a teenager at the time mm-hmm. and uh yeah they they kept diaries and discovered quite a bit about the land and the flora and the fauna as yeah. they went. They surveyed it, right? I mean, they didn't, they yeah. were mapping it. They weren't just, you know, seeing what was there. Right. They basically, they made it the colonization of the rest of the continental U.S. possible. Rebecca, when you, when you mentioned, uh, the expedition and went into some detail about it, I realized where I have heard of them from now because they feature as part of the storyline in um, Night at the Museum. Yeah. Ah, yes. There you go. That, yeah. that would be Sucka, where you would have heard that. Sucka nailed it for me. Yeah, so, that's correct. I, I like Night that, at the that, Museum based on a true story. That's actually very comforting that it was it's that Sacagawea is actually more famous outside of the US than Lewis and Clark. <laughs> Only Not to that me. they didn't do great things, <laughs> but 
She was a it's, badass. Yeah, she, absolutely. <laughs> she's on the dollar coin. I mean, Lewis and Clark, I don't, I don't recall ever made it to any money or currency of ours. Well, so, Sacagawea. She used yeah. to be on a dollar coin that everybody hated and no one used. Oh. <laughs> I still have some and I, I quite fancy them, actually. So, they stopped releasing the Sacagawea dollar in 2012 because nobody uses it. <laughs> Except me. But, hey, I got a question. When did it change from uh, Sacagawea to Sacagawea? <laughs> about uh, 10 how long is the segment 11 10 minutes? seconds ago i think when you said <laughs> it. just just wondering how do you say sacagawea it, it's it's the danbury accent. that's no no that's in the go to wikipedia it says sacagawea okay ah. what did i say sacagawea right. yeah. Right. Yeah. sacagawea yeah i don't know that's just how i learned it oh, okay i think it's a new jersey i think we is correct they're probably both wrong there's some real yeah. Indian <laughs> both bastardizations <laughs> some of, american anything yeah. okay anyway <laughs> It's oh, that missed. time of year <laughs> for the Nobel Prize announcements. I always love Yay. this. And the first one we're going to talk about is the Nobel Prize for 2014 for physiology or medicine, which goes to some neuroscientists. This is a very interesting mm. neuroscience prize. Goes to three UK-based researchers, Professor John O'Keefe, as well as May Britt Moser and Edward Moser, a husband and wife team. And they figured out something very cool. The press is calling it the brain's GPS system, which I guess is not a terrible analogy. Uh, essentially, in the 1970s, O'Keefe discovered that the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that's involved in memory, had what are called place cells. He found that in rats, a, a specific clump of neurons would increase their firing when the rats were in a specific location. And then when they were in a different location, a different clump of neurons would fire. So it, there seemed to be these neurons whose job it was to remember a specific location. And they were called place cells. And then the Mosers did follow-up research 20 years later. I mean, building on intervening research, of course, by the 1990s. They discovered that the cells in the hippocampus connect to cells in the entorhinal cortex, which is right next door. It's a very close part of the of the brain. And they discovered what are called grid cells. And as the name implies, what they found is when they looked at the brain cell activation in the entorhinal cortex in rats as they were moving through a maze, for example, that different clumps of neurons would fire in sequence based upon where the rat moved and that those clumps of neurons actually formed an, a grid in the brain. So like you literally have a map grid in your brain of neurons that correspond to the outside world and they fire as you move through three-dimensional space. Isn't that cool? So it must be wow. a very yeah. efficient design of some sort. Well, Evan, <laughs> this I think ultimately answers a burning question and Ouch. that is square maps or hex maps oh my god guess which no. kind of maps our brains have don't say square maps nope they yeah, have hex maps yeah, I would imagine <sighs> yes i've always been the defender of the hex map oh gosh and perry uh you know he was always a staunch defender of all the, right guys we have to map. let people know what we're talking about <laughs> yeah well, As they, if well they don't I, already know Come on. Right, wait, wait, well, Becca, you know well, what is a hex map? Andy, what is it? D&D related, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, 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 just you, oh, this, I don't know. This is going to be Dungeons when, and when Dragons. In doubt, when in doubt, go D&D. 
This is Dungeons and Dragons, isn't it? Yes, it is. Y- yes. yes. You need, oh, <laughs> if you my need to know what it is. So, yeah, so I mean, there, you know, there's, <laughs> the more classic maps are, they're each section is a hexagonal, you know, and then they connect up into the, into the grid pattern. And then they, that was replaced by the square map. And that was a big, huge controversy over, you know, hex versus square, <laughs> as you might imagine. But it's interesting to know that our, our brains follow a grid map pattern, a, a hex, a hex grid map pattern. It's cool. Which make, makes total perfect sense. Perry is justified. He he would be so ecstatic. I, I can't see how anyone can defend the square map now going forward, knowing <laughs> that our brains actually are organized. So anyway, the grid map and the place cells, the grid cells and the place cells actually interact in a very complicated way, not only with each other, but with other types of information. In terms of there's also neurons that are like a compass. They actually fire based upon which direction your head is pointing. So all of this information, visual, direction, distance, location, and then where you're moving in your internal grid all interacts, you know, in a very complicated way to give you a sense of of where you are, which is very interesting. And it's it's funny to think about this in terms of like our subjective experience, because have you ever been in a location and you were disoriented or Andy, as you guys would say, disorientated in America, you say disoriented. <laughs> Who cares what you say in America? (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to make sure you're keeping up. (laughs) And then suddenly you recognize enough whatever. Oh, that just happened to me. And then you're like, suddenly you're, yeah, you're oriented. You're like, oh, now I know where I am. Like it snaps into place. Like your place cells are fired. Now you know where Mm -hmm. you are, where things are in relationship to each other. It's really a very important neurological skill that we evolved. And it's funny when you experience it snapping into place and also how disorienting it is to like when you say, I don't know where I am. I don't know where things are in relation to each other. You know, it's it's interesting. Steve, so you've got these rats walking through, you know, so, making some kind of a journey. And the, neuro, the the group of neurons is firing as it goes through a particular point yeah. on the journey. If the rats returned in the same direction, would the same set of neurons fire again is oh yeah yeah so as they're moving through like the through the the maze there's the, the the researchers the mosers discovered the grid pattern because the neurons were literally firing in a grid pattern as the rat was moving and it, it basically the his movements mimicked the grid that was firing in the brain and this is a, is this a good analog for humans oh yeah this is widely represented in mammals yeah. Wow. Sorry to sound a bit thick, but what happens when you expand your frame of reference? Like, if you didn't, if you didn't know about the extent of the observable universe, and then suddenly you know about it, what happens there? Yeah. So I think that's where the place cells come in, right? Because the place tells you that you're in a specific location, and then the grid cells, I think, are relative to where you are. Does that make wow. sense? Yeah. So. It's like you're oriented to your specific location and you know where things are. Even if you closed your eyes and moved around through the space, the grid cells will still, would still be firing. So you could still have some sense of like how far you moved and where that would put you. Obviously, you know, the visual feedback for, you know, for those of us who are sighted is we rely heavily on that. But you could see how somebody even who did not have sight, because, you know, people who are blind, they learn to navigate around from oh, sure, yeah. places yeah, like their home. They're yeah. using the same grid system that we are. They're just using yeah. non-visual information in order to navigate. But yeah, but, and, and this is not fully fleshed out either because it's damn complicated. You know, this, this, and understanding the brain at this level, like what the actual circuitry is, is really complicated. And these researchers who got the Nobel Prize have discovered like the big 
concepts, the big organizing principle of how we navigate in our brains. But we're now we're now we're fleshing out the the nuances of how you know they all all the information is utilized. Well, Steve, yeah. you're, those researchers should talk to the researchers who won the chemistry prize. Okay, go, Jay. Tell us about that. There are three researchers that won the chemistry prize, and uh, here their names are Eric Betzig, Stefan Hell, and William Moriner. Now, check this out. So the committee said that the research had won the award for the development of super-resolved fluorescence microscopy. It means that they were able to improve the resolution that a, a microscope can see in, and right now, like the, or for for a very long time, probably think over a hundred years, there was a limitation on what what they could see, and everybody thought that it was a limitation of physics, that there was really no way around it. You just simply couldn't focus on on smaller yeah. objects. That was the the refractive index. I mean, that was the ultimate. I believe was the ultimate limiting factor. Yeah, I'll get to that in a minute. So the longstanding limitation of of optical microscopes had been exactly what you just said. It was the ABS diffraction limit. And if you read about it, you'll find that it gets into the physics of light and the physical nature of the apparatus is used. And I read about it. I tried. <laughs> it's complicated. You go to Wikipedia, you can see all about it. But in essence, what they were saying is that between the physics of light and the physical apparatuses, the lenses, the imperfections in lenses, the, you know, every, every little nuance of, of what makes a microscope work, there was just a limitation. There was a hard wall. And these scientists just didn't accept it. And there was two teams actually. So one of them is from Germany and the other two are from the United States. So this didn't stop them. So they, they both were working on a way to get around this and they devised a way to use fluorescent molecules to get past the limitation. So it's now possible to see activity in individual of individual molecules that are found inside living cells as an example. And this is really profound. And Steve, from what you were saying, it sounds to me that uh, they could really benefit from, from this technology because they can see synapses. They would be able to see synapses. So getting past the, you know, the 0.2 micrometers gives scientists the ability to see in the nanoscopic world. I mean, that is epic. That's a big, big difference. So here, let me, let me give you a little more detail on this. Professor Thomas Barton, the president of the American Chemical Society, told BBC News recently that it's incredible what you can do now on, on my time scale. If you had suggested being able to look at something on a one nanometer scale, an atomic scale 50 years ago, you'd have been laughed out of the room. So he's saying that, of course, you know, 50 years goes by and now we, we have the ability to see things on this. And this size. The Royal Society of Chemistry's president, Professor Dominic Tildesley, commented saying super resolution fluorescence spectro spectroscopy is now enabling scientists to spectroscopy. Whatever, spectro spe looking at stuff is now enabling scientists spectroscopy. Okay, so this super resolution fluorescence spectro stuff is now enabling scientists <laughs> to peer inside living nerve cells in order to explore brain synapses. Bingo! Thank you, Steve. The study, they could study proteins involved in Huntington's <laughs> disease and track cell division. This is really an enormous stuff, guys. He also added both involving light and both having their foundations in chemistry and physics. The, the parallels between today's chemistry prize and yesterday's physics prize highlight the truly interdisciplinary nature of science. That is so cool and encouraging. You know, you have the, these spheres of influence or spheres of science that are happening and the, these spheres are starting to crisscross. They're starting to merge into each other and we're starting to benefit from, you know, it's not, this has been going on for a long time, but you know, yeah. there really is a merge between the scientific disciplines that are out there. And Bob, you're going to tell us about the Nobel Prize in Physics for 2014. Yes, clearly you're, we're addressing these 
in order, you know, in decreasing order of importance. So uh, it's a Nobel Prize <laughs> time again. And uh, the first prize I always look out, I look for is literature, of course, and then and then physics. Uh, so this year it went to three gentlemen for their work in the 90s creating the first viable blue-colored LED. So yeah. congratu- congratulations to Isamu Agasaki, Hiroshi Amano, and Shuji Nakamura for their achievement that changed not only uh, the technology of illumination, but many other things in our technological culture as well. Uh, light-emitting diodes, I think we need a little primer on it. It's, it's pretty fascinating technology. LEDs in general have a tremendous advantage over conventional illuminations uh, like uh, incan- incandescent bulbs. There's lots of advantages. Uh, for one, uh, there's no filament that can burn out, so they don't get very hot. Incandescence transform only 10% of the current they get into making photons. 90% goes into creating heat, which is why easy bake ovens work so well because they, they use that little light bulb. <laughs> and so this is obviously very inefficient and fluorescent bulbs aren't much better. Efi- efficiency then is one of the hallmarks of LED lighting. And, uh, there's a, there's an interesting comparison that puts them into, into perspective. Incandescence are 16 lumens per watt. And a lumen is a measure of the total amount of visible light. So that's 16 for incandescence. Compact fluorescents are 67 lumens per watt. And LEDs are 83, which seemed a little low to me. Uh, I thought it would be more dramatic, but it's still it's still much better. And they're projecting um, going to 150 lumens by by 2020. So that's just going up pretty steeply. And the other the other types of lighting technology aren't improving really at all. And also there's other things like the lifetime. I mean, an LED can have 50,000 hours of life compared to an incandescent, which is only like 1,200 hours or so. So huge difference there. And this, of course, makes them a lot cheaper over the life of the unit. And they're getting cheaper all the time. Actually, some of the more expensive units are still kind of uh, a little too expensive, but everybody's predicting that's just going to that's going to just take a steep dive over time and the overall expense is reduced again because it's using less electricity that's that's a lot greener obviously a lot better and they're also very rugged they're really tiny obviously they mean like a, like a square millimeter or a couple square millimeters um and they're easy to integrate into electronics and so all that together i mean this is clearly an, an amazing product so it's pretty clear that LED technology is vastly superior to to pretty much all other other forms of lighting the way it works is actually pretty interesting as well and it all has to do with the diode right the d and led the diode that's where all the action happens Our diodes are all they really are is just simple types of semiconductors that's all it is it's a type of semiconductor and diodes generally have two semiconductors materials that are bonded together one is called the n-type which has extra electrons the other semiconductor is a p-type and that has uh, what they call holes which is actually just a space for an electron uh, to fit into in the orbit around around an atom. So this movement has the very nice beneficial side effect of emitting light. And that happens because when an electron moves to a hole, it moves into a closer orbit around uh, around this new atom, meaning that the electron has less energy than it did in the, the bigger orbit. So that extra energy is released as light. So if that drop in orbit is tiny, relatively tiny, of course, the light that's emitted is so weak that we can't even see it. And typically, this is infrared light. So which, which devices, guys, you must know which, which devices use these infrared LEDs. Clickers, TV clickers. Uh, oh. oh. So these, these LED, <laughs> these uh, infrared LEDs were the very first modern LEDs. I think that was around uh, 62. So soon after that, though, of course, uh, they, they would determine how to create much more energetic light. So the, uh, the drop in orbit was much more significant, creating uh, more energetic light. 
and uh, they produced Red. Oh, Red was in 1962. That was 62. So Red came in 1962. And uh, some of you may remember growing up uh, when they first appeared in electronics, like indicator lamps and calculators. Yeah. And th- those first really lame digital watches. Texas and Instruments. Then, yes. And then after Red mm. came uh, kind of an orange color and then yellow, followed by many others except Blue. That was like one of the last really important holdouts. And uh, everyone everyone knew that Blue was important because you could you could – Make white light with it, uh, for, for example. And there's multiple ways, but one way to do it is to combine the primary colors of red, green, and blue. So creating white light, however, that wasn't the only benefit. It also gave us a new way to make all the other colors as well and a way to control them dynamically, which is, which is very key to LEDs. And then the invention of this blue LED came in 1994. And that's what won these guys the Nobel Prize recently. Did you guys know that they weren't the first? There were two other instances of researchers creating blue LEDs earlier than these guys, 1971 and 1989, but they had problems, of course. They were, there was either like too little light output or it had really, really bad efficiencies in the range of something like 0.03%. So it was really bad. So that's what these guys did. And, uh, that thanks to them and more importantly, all the other people, you know, the standing on the shoulders of giants, they, they and lots of other people that we don't even know their names have, had made incredible contributions, not just to the blue LED, but all the, all the other colors, diode technology, semiconductor technology, all that together, uh, to give us our LED TVs, our colorful smartphones, um, and even the white light bulbs, which you can buy now. Uh, like I said, they're still a little expensive. But, uh, over the life, I'm sure they're worth it over the, over the lifetime of the LED and they're going to be, you know, so much cheaper in the near future. So, uh, so really these guys deserve it. Interesting, uh, in- interesting, uh, invention here. Yeah, de- wow. definitely. I mean, it opened up so many possibilities, you know. It still winds me up when people say LED display though. Ah. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ATM machine. Yeah, pin number. Yeah. Well, CD display. Pin number. <laughs> LCD display. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, oh, UK, guys, you know what I hate? When people UK say aluminium. Britain. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we're going to get, we're going to go from the coolest science to celebrate in 2014, Evan, to some, uh, not cool science. Some might <laughs> sure. call pseudoscience. Hmm. And they'd be right. D- um, you've all, <laughs> perhaps you've heard of Loyola Marymount University. No. Yes. Of course you have. It's a relatively high-profile university here in the United States. Uh, They are a Division I athletic program, for example, which gives them exposure that only a select few other Roman Catholic universities enjoy. And they have some famous alumni. Here are a couple names. Let's see if you know these. Uh, Mila Kunis. Yeah. Actress, that's that 70s show, Family Guy, movies and stuff. Uh, Carson Daly. No. Television personality. No? Nothing? Okay. Now, everyone knows Bob Denver. Of course. Gilli- Gilligan from yeah. Gilligan's Island? Come on. Singer, songwriter. And uh, Mindy Cohn from uh, The Facts of Life. Yes. Uh, Andy, I don't expect you to know that one. Yeah, I'm missing some cultural references here. <laughs> A rather rubbish television show back in the 80s, but in any case. Um, also, I should note Johnny Cochran and Robert Shapiro, the two attorneys who defended O.J. Simpson in his successful um, trial against his, his, uh, his being accused of murder. Also from Loyola Marymount. So they're, they're taught primarily by the Jesuits, right? Which if you have to have, I guess, a religious university, the Jesuits do a pretty fair job, I think, of making sure science remains untainted with religion. And that's been our experience, Steve, right? There, I mean, you know, they're the scholarly end of the Catholic Church. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you have to go that way, you, you go with the Jesuits. Now, with all that said, at Loyola Marymount University, there's a college called Bellarmine College of Liberal Arts. And the college has a program called Yoga Studies. In any case, the Yoga Studies program at the college has been bestowing an award called the Doshi Family Bridge Builder Award. So forget all these Nobel awards, right? Those are a dime a dozen. There's only one recipient of this scholastic award each year. And goes to a civil engineer. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might think so. Built a bridge out of it. <laughs> the 2014 recipient of the Doshi Family Bridge Builder Award is Rupert Sheldrake. Yes. Yay. 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 He's a Brit. Brilliant. A single issue, issue voter. Then, I Wrong issue. <laughs> they, they have him listed as a uh, biologist and author of more than 80 scientific papers and 10 books, including a book called set Science Set Free. Mm-hmm. What's the other What's the other book he wrote? He wrote one called, um, oh, The Science Delusion, which is an anti-scientific rant in which he applies postmodernist hyper-skepticism to science, accusing scientists of adhering to scientific dogmata, such as the consistency of the speed of light. So, gives you a little Such as logic and evidence, you know. Speaking of dogma, he also thinks that dogs are psychic. So he is this year's one and only (laughs) recipient of this fine award from this esteemed university. (laughs) Yay, go Rupert. He is... The poster child for pseudoscience. I mean, it's, you know, he's like the perfect pseudoscience, like everything that would make the definition of pseudoscience. You know, he has this theory of everything, his morphic resonance. You guys familiar Mm -hmm. with this? Oh my God. That, you know, information is sort of stored in nature and like ants remember all of the experience of all the previous ants there have ever been. That's how they know how to build, you know, ant colonies. Mm -hmm. And that's how it explains you know, development and, of course, tele- all telepathy. Well, certainly there is scientific evidence showing that his theory is absolutely 100% correct. Isn't that right, Steve? Well, there, there's evidence. It's all, yeah. <laughs> Again, it, this is the poster child <laughs> for pseudoscience. He does crappy research that is designed to give the positive answer that he's looking for. And then he, you know, isn't wasn't accepted with open arms by the scientific community. So science is wrong. Those scientists right. are engaged in a conspiracy. They're all materialists. You know, he has a whole page on his website dedicated to attacking skeptics because we don't believe his BS. It's He's going about it in exactly the wrong way. Uh, he was interviewed not too long ago, and he had this to say, which I thought kind of summed up his whole belief system. If you don't uh, believe our take on it, hear it from his own uh, his own brain. Here he goes. Morphic fields are associated with a kind of collective memory, and my hypothesis is that the so-called laws of nature are like habits. I don't think this memory is stored in a spatial record of any kind, but rather depends on the direct resonance between similar patterns of activity across time. Nevertheless, the Indian and the theosophical nation of Akashic records does rightly emphasize does rightly emphasis the memory in nature, and in that sense is somewhat similar to my own hypothesis. So the Akashic Record, apparently, he's uh, he's all on board there, and I think that uh, really really sums it up. I, I thought of a good bumper sticker for, for Rupert Sheldrake. He, he'd make a mint selling these. It's very simple. He goes, and therefore, ESP. Yeah. There you have it. Therefore, that, that. magic. <laughs> <laughs> That's the bottom line. 
I think it's particularly cute. He's done so much research into whether the right. whether dogs know. It's that so their important, Andy. Yeah, I mean, come on, one. man. It's very cute. We need to know. You're right. It's, gra- it's groundbreaking Look, stuff. More than we need 80, to know. Eight, <laughs> 80 scientific Yay! papers, which is actually in dispute, uh, <laughs> even though he likes to claim it and others trumpet that as well. But uh, that's uh, they say it's much, much fewer. And the journals that these scientific papers appear in are not exactly, you know, it's not exactly Nature or British Journal of Medicine or anything like that. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. And talk again about the course we've been reviewing recently, Impossible Physics Beyond the Edge, taught by Professor Benjamin Schumacher. The Great Courses is all about learning, right? This is what's so awesome about The Great Courses. We all are into science. We all love to learn about different sciences. And The Great Courses produces fantastic content from famous professors all around the world. And the thing is, guys, when you want to learn a new subject, it's actually really good to learn it from somebody who knows how to teach it, not just from reading a textbook or whatever. You need to absorb the information in a way that's been thought out. And that's why The Great Courses is so fantastic. Yeah, and you know, Jay, you can listen or watch anytime, anywhere. You can either download it, you can stream it via a number of apps, or you can get them on DVD or CD. And so the learning is up to you. You just listen or watch whenever you want, whenever's good for you, without all of the pressure of taking tests and exams and stuff. We want you to try the great courses. There's a special offer just for you. If you order Impossible Physics Beyond the Edge, you get 80% off the original price. But it's only for a limited time, so get it now. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy listening to this particular course, Impossible Physics Beyond the Edge. It's a very interesting way to approach a lot of different physics topics by exploring what we know and what we can't know and what is possible and what is not possible and how we know it's not possible. Like, for example, is time travel possible? There's a whole lecture on that. And And the answer is yes. Well, it's more complicated that you'll have to listen to find yeah, out. One second per second uh, in the future. So yeah, this is a, this is what I'm really enjoying. I highly recommend it. So right after you listen to this podcast, go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Well, we're going to continue to move down the scale <laughs> from... Wait, I thought we were... That, wait, you can only go up. I no, think I, think, I think we can go down from Rupert. <laughs> I think oh, I can no. top that. Rebecca. <laughs> I maybe can. I don't know. It's hard to compete with Rupert, but I think the food babe can do it. Oh, crud. You're right. Oh. Yeah. You guys remember the food Jesus. babe. Oh, yeah. How can we forget her? We've spoken How about her before. How is she even a thing? Uh, Andy, do you have the food babe in the UK? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, don't have, we don't have the food babe in the UK as such, but uh, we do have the uh, entrails <laughs> of her campaign here. So, uh, so Subway right. had to do something. So, did you yeah. Uh, yeah. happen to see her most recent war on pumpkin spice? Oh, I know all about it. The, oh my god, this is such an well, important topic. That is uh, a bit of an Americanism <laughs> at this point, but I do know that it's starting to leak over into the UK and elsewhere. Uh, can can we apologize oh now goodness. for that? No. Would that be appropriate? No. Oh. We will never apologize because pumpkin is the greatest food ever made and it does belong in every other food. And I have <laughs> been an advocate for this for years. And so I have never had a problem with things like, oh, Starbucks pumpkin spice latte. A lot of people do. They think 
There's too much pumpkin and too much pumpkin spice everywhere. I am not one of those people. Rebecca, Rebecca, Oreo pumpkin spice cookies. Okay, that uh, might have been too far. I draw, I draw the line, but Rebecca, you would have loved my dinner last night. Pumpkin soup and then pumpkin ravioli. Boy, was nice. it good. Nice. Oh, I love wow. a good pumpkin ravioli. Oof. Yeah, we have spoken about her in the past and how she, uh, I think before we were talking about how she was accusing Subway of putting yoga mats in their bread. This time, uh, her target is Starbucks and it is the pumpkin spice latte. And, uh, she put out this, this, uh, graphic accusing Starbucks of, uh, basically filling their pumpkin spice lattes with death. And, uh, the, the first thing that really <laughs> stuck out for a lot of people that made them pass this around on Facebook and elsewhere is that the pumpkin spice latte has no real pumpkin what? in the ingredients. How and horrible. people were shocked at this. Yeah, how dare you? Uh, not realizing, apparently, that pumpkin spice is a thing. There is an actual spice that's called pumpkin spice. <laughs> well, it's a combination of spices, yeah. I've never heard, I've never heard of this. Technically, it's like, like Mexican spice. Mexican spice has no actual Mexicans in it. But yeah, I was gonna say uh, poultry spice has no chickens in it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's there's poultry spice, there's pork spices. Does all spice have everything in it? All spice is literally every everything. Spice. And I understand the sour patch kids, no kids. Not a no children. Children. <laughs> There are no children. This is this is false advertising left and right. So it's yeah, pumpkin someone. spice is uh technically cinnamon, ginger, nutmeg, and allspice, which are the same things that you can get in like oh, a right. chai latte mm. usually, uh, or that go into gingerbread yep. cookies. And then the same things that go into pumpkin pie, which is why they are called pumpkin spice when you put them all together. And you can get them in the grocery store in a little thing called pumpkin spice. And so that's what goes into pumpkin spice lattes. Uh, so that is one of the things that the food babe calls out. And so you immediately know that she's full of it. But there are other things that she calls out, including uh, caramel or caramel, if you prefer, coloring, uh, which she says is a carcinogen. That's not strictly true. There's really no evidence uh, to suggest that it is a carcinogen in humans at the level that it's used in Things like pumpkin spice lattes or colas or anything else you eat that is brown, basically. Uh, she also is upset that pumpkin spice lattes are made with quote unquote Monsanto milk, aka what? aka regular milk. Yeah, milk, basically. <laughs> also known as milk. Yeah, uh, milk <laughs> that comes from cows that are fed. GMO foods. Oh, oh you know, just call it Nazi My milk. Oh, no. Nazi milk. Yeah, yes. why not Hitler? Hitler milk. milk. She also claims that yeah. they they contain a quote unquote toxic dose of sugar. Which, oh. FYI, I've had a pumpkin spice latte. I have known people who drank pumpkin spice lattes. I have known zero people who have died from sugar overdoses from eating How do you Rebecca, know because can, they're can I dead, interject huh? for just one second? I did get diabetes. Re yes. Could I please interject? Okay. Please, yeah. She yeah, clearly has never say. heard of pixie sticks. Yeah. Because <gasps> I I've eaten so many pixie sticks that I got sick. Okay? <laughs> I know the the sugar tolerance level and it, yeah. and I'm telling you that a pumpkin spice latte, whatever you're getting from Starbucks, is not even close to the point where you're <laughs> going to get sick. 
And I'm telling you, I probably ate a hundred dollars worth of pixie sticks. I believe that, Jay. <laughs> it I've, is I've it. worth noting <laughs> that there is a lot of sugar in Starbucks, like fancy drinks, but I'm pretty sure at this point, everyone knows that no one is ordering mm. like a caramel frappuccino and considering a health beverage. Like, yes, they are full of sugar. A toxic yeah. dose. Uh, demonstrably no. <laughs> like, obviously people are consuming these <laughs> and not dying or contracting life-threatening diseases. So, you know, she's, there are a number of issues. So, uh, one of my, uh, the skeptic sister sites, Grounded Parents, where they blog about parenting stuff. Coven Synapathy blogged about this the other day and she pointed out that they had actually, uh, Food Babe and others had started a petition that they were actually trying to get Starbucks to, uh, change their milk to come from GMO free cows. And they, uh, apparently did a petition with more than 120,000, uh, signatures, which they think it's a lot, but apparently they have not seen Starbucks numbers recently. <laughs> like 120,000 people is not a big deal to them. And so, yeah, so far Starbucks has not bowed to the pressure. They have continued to serve up their GMO delicious drinks <laughs> without, uh, without Highly making addictive. any changes. And Rebecca, and, in fact, didn't yeah. Starbucks make a public, uh, comment about this? I mean, they actually said something. About their, their uh, shareholders, like if they said, so if you, you know, if you disagree uh, with how, with what we believe, then, you know, you're more than welcome to, to sell your shares or something like that. They really just did not. They're not taking the bait. No, I know. All I, all I saw uh, was that they responded with, we actually don't have anything else to share at this time, but thanks for checking. That's what they said. <laughs> the reason why yeah. Starbucks is very smart, because if they, if <laughs> yeah. they bowed to anything like this, they would be opening themselves up to an enormous amount of pressure from a lot of different groups. Yeah. So yeah, here's a newsflash, guys. Starbucks is not a health food oh. store. Right. You know, it's a, it's a <laughs> coffee what? and donut type of shop where you go to get sugary food and sugary drinks. Yeah. You know, exactly. so yeah, they, it's they absolutely don't want to open themselves up to this. So they're, they're, I think that they should, it's a game of chicken and they should absolutely not blink. If, if there was no real, um, monetary difference, I would absolutely not blame them for switching. But I, I think that there probably is a huge monetary difference to go over to, quote unquote GMO free, uh, milk, not because it's healthier or better, but because by labeling their stuff GMO free, you know, people can charge a premium for the milk. And so I don't know, maybe they'll start offering a GMO free option. I could totally see them do that. Yeah. But yeah, as of right now, it doesn't seem to be making much of a difference. Well, I, we, uh, through the help of one of our listeners, I posted a call to action, uh, for skeptics on, uh, on the SGU Facebook page this weekend. And we we had had an enormous response. I mean, the call to action was uh, in in essence saying, you know, I think people interpret it as support Starbucks by, you know, helping them understand that they don't, don't have to change anything. They don't have to, you know, bow to any of the pressure or whatever. What we were really asking skeptics to do was stand up against the anti-GMO sentiment. Well, Andy, continuing our downhill slide, maybe we're kind of getting into sort of equivalent territory here. You're going to tell us about a UK psychic 
that uh, the, you guys have gone up against. Yeah, that's right. Rebecca, I'm going to try and top your story now. All right, good luck. <laughs> Steve, are you sure you want me to talk about this? Because there is a lawsuit involved. Just a joke. Um, not against Saki- me, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, not not yet. Not we'll yet, see how yeah. it goes, right? Oh, we'll see how it goes. Beat me to it. Um, <laughs> I just want to talk about um, an article that uh, appeared in the Guardian a couple of days ago. Um, the reason I want to really talk about it because it's an interesting topic for skeptics, and it says a little bit about skepticism in the UK too. So this evening before this recording, I was at the theatre in my hometown of Southport, Merseyside, as a small contribution to Psychic Awareness Month, which is running for the whole of October, a project initiated by Mark Tilbrook and run in conjunction with the Good Thinking Society, an organisation started by Simon Singh, um, and a fellow uh, recipient of financial support from QED. You guys know Simon Singh, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great guy. So uh, the story is that a little while ago, a cha- this chap, Mark Tilbrook, prepared a simple leaflet designed to encourage attendees at psychic shows into considering that the information received at these events may be more mundane than the theatrical presentation would suggest. Then he would show up and hand them out to the people in the queue. It's a simple idea, and you might question the effectiveness of this type of direct action, but you'd definitely be wrong to question how polite and humble Mark's approach was at the gigs. What was problematic is that while he was handing them out, Sally Morgan's husband, John Morgan, and her son-in-law, Darren Wilshire, came outside, and all manner of intimidation tactics ensued, escalating across the three shows we are concerned with here. It began with simple verbal intimidation, like threats and aggression, but became actual physical threats, such as uh, threatening that Mark would be thrown under a train or being lifted, for example. He was told that they knew where he lived and he would be followed home, the obvious implication being something might happen. So it's easy to think that these are idle or immature threats, but one of the perpetrators, um, Sally Morgan's husband, John, is a big bloke. And when that's combined with the right level of aggression and language, it's hard not to take it seriously. Now, I can't say with any certainty whether the personal information that they have about Mark was obtained by psychic means. Um, which would have probably been the simplest route, given the selling proposition of the business, or by Google. But either way, they're making the effort to personally identify Mark and personalise the threats against him with that information, and that was a worrying development for him. Fortunately, by this time, the exchanges were being audio recorded and on one occasion video recorded. Now, I have the examples here, and I'd like to go through a few quotes that were audio recorded. Um, I've cherry-picked some of the best stroke worst ones. So in the first exchange, Mark, when challenged by uh, by Morgan, says, I'm not doing anything illegal. The response he received was, but you are a prat and I'm losing my temper because I'm going to knock you out sooner or later. So F off before I do you. All right? At the end of the clip, he ominously says, we know all about your life. So I'm just going to play that for you now. I don't care I'm not doing anything illegal. But you're a fat. I'm losing my temper because I'm going to knock you out sooner or later. Well, so fuck off before I do you. All right? Well, that's just go. Just go. Do you like so intimidation? Do you. Yeah, because you're intimidating. I'm not intimidating. In fact, you're a puff as well. You know all about your life. What do you know about my life? Well, it all, mate. What do you think about that? <laughs> 
Well, maybe you're, you know, maybe you're misinterpreting what he was saying. You know, <laughs> he's kind of using some street lingo there. Yeah, and knock you out, like uh, buy you a drink, perhaps, or something. <laughs> yeah. No, perhaps. Well, uh, no. the the, uh, the situation escalated a little bit. Next, he gets a final water warning where um, he re- he repeats the threat to mo- not Mark out. So I'm going to reach you in a minute. I'm going to knock you out. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. It's hard. It's hard to tell from the clip, but there's actually two voices in there. In the third exchange, the tack changes, and uh, disturbingly, it changes to address a perception of Mark's sexuality, uh, where uh, John Morgan says, "Who is it you are sleeping with?" and then lists a bunch of names of people from the skeptical community. And pretty much all of the people he names are male. These are all, all the names bar one are bleeped out in this, by the way. Who is it you're sleeping with? Is it, um, in your sleeping with? Or is it Paul Zenon? Paul Zenon? No. I'm not friends with Paul Zenon. I don't know Paul Zenon. Uh, well, that's yeah, yeah, not. Please check a bit. Who's the other guy, though? Who's the other one? What one on telly? Uh, why do you think of this? Uh, so lots of threats about lawsuits and naming names and uh, invoking the fact that they won some money off a newspaper in order to make the threat stronger. Continuing the theme of um, uh, of attacking a perception of Mark's sexual orientation, uh, he then goes to throw in a little light banter, um, and he says, these are quotes, by the way, are you on drugs, or has someone shagged you too much? Has one of your boyfriends been up your arse? Mark, quite reasonably at this point, asks John Morgan, that's husband of Sally Morgan, psychic to the stars, why he thinks he is gay. His response, you are gay. We checked you out. I know your whole life, mate. Who you work for? And then suggests that if Mark has printed the leaflets at work, then he's even in even more trouble. Uh, earlier on in the conversation, he had said that they would sue both him and whoever printed the leaflets. Here's the clip. Are you on drugs or someone shaked too much? One of your boyfriends been up your arse. What do you think of gay? You are gay. You checked her out. I know your whole life, mate. Who you work for? I'm very. I want to know if that's treated by your company because you're in serious trouble. According to our QC, that's pretty, uh, pretty damning, isn't it? Yeah. So the guy's basically a thug. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So he basically thinks he thinks that's an insult. He thinks that that someone's sexual orientation is something that could be used as an insult against them. Yeah. And that that's going to make them cease their. <laughs> what they're doing. It's ridiculous. So after all of this, and th- there's a lot more than that, uh, but after all of this, there was a solicitor's letter from her team, um, and this contained the type of legal threats that you guys are currently all too familiar with. And before you know it, Mark is on his own being threatened with a life-changing lawsuit that he doesn't have the financial resources to defend. Now, luckily, we we have some people doing good stuff over here. Mark spoke with Michael Marshall or Marsh of the uh, he's Merseyside Marsh is he's uh, Merseyside skeptics. He's an organizer of QED and he works for the Good Thinking Society with Simon. 
Um, he spoke to Mike, to Marsh about it, and Simon Singh referred him to a solicitor that had been central to his own libel defence action. And after four months of very intimidating letters throughout which Mark stood up to them, it all went quiet from their solicitors. So Mark decided it was a good time to start leafleting again because the right, and because the right to free speech is an important topic for the Good Thinking Society, together they all created the Psychic Awareness Month. The logic being, basically, if the psychics want to get all hoity-toity about it, then let's just supersize the idea. And various people from sceptical groups around the country are repeating exactly the same exercise at Morgan's shows, as well as other prominent celebrity psychics, such as Derek Acora, Colin Fry and Tony Stockwell. This action involves Nottingham sceptics, Greenwich sceptics, Maidstone, Bournemouth, Plymouth and other sceptic societies from around the country. And it's not without risk. Other threats have included being thrown under a train and the slightly more innocuous, do you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to pick you up and put you in the bin. I don't know how that was an escalation of throwing somebody under a train, but that's what it was. Um, there was a bit more philosophical discussion of sexuality thrown in for good measure too. Um, when it was suggested that Mark attends a skeptics meeting instead, saying, they're all gay, they'll lap you up, they'll put you in the barrel. Now, I've been to quite a few skeptics meetings, and if we were all gay, I certainly couldn't tell. I'd like to also state for the record that thus far, I have not, to the best of my knowledge, been lapped in any way at a skeptics meeting. And I've never been in a barrel. I don't even know what that means. Jay, you're the expert on these things. What does being put in a barrel mean? Well, I was just assuming he meant he was just going to throw him in the trash. Yeah, maybe that's it. But uh, it looks like, as I said before, the le it looks like the legal threats have now subsided with their legal team no longer responding to correspondence, which is good. But I think like with your own legal defense, it's an example of how we can have our say and we can be defenders of consumer rights when we have a just cause and we work together. And this is one thing I really like about scepticism in the UK, and I, I, I don't know what it's like over there, but everybody's doing their own thing. But when required, we can step up together to work together in situations that require it. We saw it with the 1023 campaign, saw it with Simon Singh's libel case, with your situation, and now with Mark Tilbrook, and I'm sure there's other uh, examples. Anyway, fast forward to today, and following the publication of this news story in The Guardian, and a bit of a Twitter storm um, today, myself and Michael Marshall headed off to the theatre to do our bit for Psychic Awareness Month. And to be fair, I think they've realised this campaign isn't going away, and there was no sign tonight of the extreme behaviour discussed earlier. I was approached by the venue management, who asked me not to distribute them uh, leaflets on their property, which required me to move about 24 inches to the left. Uh, then the aforementioned Darren Wilshire came over, said nothing, but took a photo of me on his camera phone, then left. Later, an unknown person came over and did a similar thing with an actual camera. Um, I gave them both an enormous smile. Um, but the customers were very nice. I was very nice to everyone, and so was Marsh. John Morgan spoke to a lady who had been speaking with Marsh and asked if we had been harassing her. It looked like he was holding his phone to record her damning response at the same time, and she simply replied that Marsh had been lovely. Mm -hmm. um, just for the record, not a view I share, just so you know. Um, <laughs> to be fair, it wasn't a dramatic bit of activism, but I think that's because they now expect it. So just a final couple of points on this. Um, the leaflet that was used at the event is available as a download on the Good Thinking Society website. I circulated it to you guys earlier. I don't know if you've had a chance to yeah, look at it. Yeah, it's very mild. You know, yeah, it's, absolutely, yeah. 
It's really well written because it sounds like it can come from someone who actually believes in psychic phenomena, but just wants people to not get scammed. And that's yeah. perfect. I think what I liked about it was it was just non-judgmental. It was just like, here's some information for you type of thing. Okay, Evan, it's Who's That Noisy time. Yep, I'm going to play for you last week's Who's That Noisy. I've got it in the queue. It's ready to go. Here we go. Was it the musical Stomp? Yeah, sort of. I think Jay was about to start rapping then. (laughs) I was feeling it. (laughs) So I went ahead and I put a little hint on our message boards, suforums.com, to see if that would help anybody. Alas, it did not. Oh, (laughs) Because there were no correct guesses for this week. Okay, got everybody. but But what that was, and the hint was, is that that was one item with roughly 56 parts to it. So if you think about that, what you have is a deck of cards, right? You've got the 52 playing cards, you've got the uh the two jokers, you've got the pack itself and usually the the insert card that advertises. So 56 parts <laughs> to a typical deck of cards. And the fellow very creatively turned it into a musical beat all with one deck of cards. Very cool. At least I thought it was cool, but... Uh, okay. So is it though, basically a percussionist using a deck of cards as his instrument? That's exactly correct. Oh, okay. And with cool. so many, you know, poker players and other people who enjoy games and stuff who listen to the SG, I would have thought somebody might have gotten that. But alas, none. So, so I suppose... So, so that's not a mashup then? That's uh, a live recording with one deck of cards? I think he did edit it. He edited the sounds together, right? Right, okay. He yeah. took yeah. the individual sounds and then, and then put it all together, but did it all with a deck of cards, and it's on YouTube. Cool. Punchwater. Look up Punchwater, the sound of cards. Very cool. Well done. So I'm going to play for you the newest Who's That Noisy. This is an insect, folks. That's a big hint. This is an insect, so I want to play for you this insect. Who's that insect? That's a bug? That is a bug. <laughs> I'm going to guess some kind of beetle. I'm just playing the odds. Ha, <laughs> <laughs> play the odds. Steve is alluding to the fact that there are more beetles than any other sort of yes. insect out there. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So that's inordinate act- fondness for beetles. WTN at theskepticsguide.org. That's our email. Or as I mentioned before, sguforums.com. You can post your guess there. And as I say every week, and I mean it, really, from the bottom of my heart, good luck to all you skeptics. I always wish people from the top of my heart. <laughs> the atrium. I always wish you from my right atrium. The atrium. <laughs> yeah, that, that's catchy. That, that'll catch on soon. That is fabulously, fabulously specific. Mike, yes. Hall, Mike Hall's uh, lucky number is uh, pi. <laughs> yeah, pi. <laughs> mm, pi. It's actually time to move on to science or fiction. Oh, I'm so excited! Yay. So excited! <laughs> I'm gonna kick all your asses. All right, all right, all right. Gauntlet thrown. <laughs> well, everyone, we're gonna take a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors, Squarespace.com. Yeah, Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to make your own professional website, portfolio, or online store, or all three, mm. if you're feeling crazy. 
Uh, and you can get a free trial and 10% off just by going to squarespace.com and entering the offer code, which is SGU, at checkout. Uh, a better web starts with your website. You know, guys, I was talking to a friend at work. I'm totally serious. He uh, he's not a developer, so he's he's not you know he doesn't know how to how to code a website. And he put he cobbled together using some lame um, interface some website, and he showed it to me. And I'm like, you know, it's kind of okay, but did you know about Squarespace? I I, <laughs> I, I was really kind of playing it up. It's like check it out. I mean, it's amazing what they could do, and it's and it's so simple. So like a week later, I totally forgot about it. He comes back, he shows me the same website that he did in Squarespace, and holy crap, I could I, I even I was surprised. It's not like they have 24-hour, seven-day-a-week support through live chat and email. Oh, wait. Yes, they do, actually. And it's not like it's only $8 a month, which includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Oh, wait. It does. Bob, you probably forgot to talk to your friend about how awesome the responsive design idea is with all their templates. Responsive design means that you build the website and then any platform that somebody views it on, an iPad, smartphone, of any size, it'll change the orientation of the website so you could see it on any platform. So you can start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. So when you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code SGU to get your 10% off of your first purchase. That's squarespace.com, offer code SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? We have three yes, news items, so no theme, just three regular old news items. Here we go. Item number one. Astronomers have discovered a pulsar that is 100 times brighter than theories predict a pulsar can be. Item number two, scientists have dated cave art in Indonesia to 40,000 years ago, older than any known art in Europe where it was previously thought to first develop. And item number three, anatomists have, for the first time, positively identified the structures responsible for vaginal orgasm in women. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Did they draw a map? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jay, you had the first... Outburst there, so um, why don't Uh-oh. you go first? I will go first. Don't we normally make the guests go yeah, first? Yeah, but Jay, I just can't resist Jay's outburst. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to go first. Okay, so astronomers have... They've discovered... Did you, did you say astronomers? <laughs> astronomers! Astronomers. Those are the people that they bring out when they find like the really big stuff. This is a, I'm talking about 100 <laughs> times brighter than... Then what we think a pulsar can be, they don't just bring out an astronomer. They got to bring out the, the heavy lifting guys. All right. So this is very crazy here, like a hundred times brighter than, than they predicted a pulsar could be. That is, in, that's an incredibly big leap. I wonder, I wonder if this is true. I wonder what the hell is going on here. I have learned to not second guess the unlimited nature of, of, uh, the physical world. Um, scientists have, um, they dated the cave art in Indonesia. 40,000 years ago. Again, this is one of those like, okay, they found something that they didn't think they were going to find, but yep, that's a long time ago. I agree. And, you know, were people even making cave art that long ago? But it doesn't seem like something that I, I really would need to be incredibly skeptical about. And the last one, the, uh, so this one about the structures responsible for vaginal orgasm in women. Vaginal. Now, 
I have a problem with this one, and that is. Oh, I'm sorry, Jay. That, you have that never that given I, a woman <laughs> a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry to hear. <laughs> See, but that statement, like you, you're, you're acting as if I'm worried about it. You know, <laughs> Rebecca, you know, getting a little personal here, but um, I'm just thinking about how beneficial this could be to a lot of people that I know. Okay, not not me. No, I. I I think that this one is the fake because I think we already knew exactly what was responsible for vaginal orgasms, Bob. So you think this is a fake Bob. orgasm? I think this one, <laughs> this one's the fake. <laughs> Did you write that one down before you recorded, Steve? <laughs> Just came to me. <laughs> oh! In a dream? Oh. All right, Andy, why don't you Uh-oh. go next? Oh, well, that's, yeah. that screwed me up because I was just going to GWR. But, uh, <laughs> since it's down to me, um, astronomers have discovered a pulsar that's a hundred times brighter than theories predict a pulsar can be. Like Jay, I'm, I don't really see any problem with that. It's just a big pulsar, I suppose. Um, scientists have dated cave art in Indonesia to the, see, number two for me sounds way too plausible. I think number three is the one where I would, I would agree with Jay again that, it's the for the first time part of that that uh, I've got an issue. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's been discovered before. Um, but I'm all for vaginal orgas- orgasms. I'm very happy about that. And it's making it into the mainstream skeptical community. Um, so I'm going to go with two. Indonesia is the fiction. Is what yeah, you're saying. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Bob. I, I, I disagree with uh, Andy and Jay on one in that you should be impressed by a hundred <laughs> times brighter. That is significant. And it's not just like, oh, you know, pulsars can be more powerful than we thought. I mean, the, the amount of brightness that a pulsar can have is based on, on its mass and density. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's related to that. So that's huge. That's really an, an amazing number. You know, I'm not too surprised. By the vaginal one, it's um, you know, uh, there's so so much research has been not been carried out, not that you would think would have already been carried out by now about this kind of stuff, and and it's not like they're saying, look, we know we discovered the clitoris. It's it's something more, much more subtle than that, um, <laughs> and so the second one, I agree with Andy. This seems this seems too plausible. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of an outlier compared to one and, and three to me. I, I'm going to say that the art is, uh, is fiction. Okay, Evan. Um, vaginal orgasm. Yeah, for the first time, yeah, perhaps that's kind of a key there. Um, I'm not sure. It's a little ambiguous, but I'll tell you, I'm going to have to agree with Jay. I, th- I think that of the three that this one's going to wind up being the fiction. Fiction because of ambiguous genitalia. Got it. Okay. Yes. So it looks like we're, we have an even split between two and three, Rebecca. So you, oh, okay. you're the tiebreaker. you're just going to move on. No, no. You're, Rebecca, you're the tiebreaker. So go ahead. <laughs> you can okay. Well, the orgasm thing to. is the only thing that I've heard this week. And so that's <laughs> what I'm going to be uh, basing my science fiction answer on. I, I don't know if this is what you are basing this item on, but I did see a giant, like, really dumb-sounding BS study that claims that there's no such thing as a vaginal orgasm this week. And my problem is that this was sent to me by my other skeptic colleagues. They're always 
first on the button, so to speak, with the uh, <laughs> orgasm. Nice work, Rebecca. Studies. Uh, nice work. Yes, they know uh, to however, yes. uh, the link was broken. Like, I guess it's just been getting <clears throat> pounded. Uh, and <laughs> has, unfortunately, the website has gone down. The, uh, no, oh! I haven't planned any of this, by the way. This is all just <laughs> coming to wow. me. Uh, <laughs> so I wasn't actually effective. able to read the original study. All I know is that I saw uh, several popular science uh, writers talking about this study that was apparently done by quote-unquote sexologists. And I don't know if these people have actual degrees or if they just added the word ologist to a word they liked and <laughs> published this study based on it. However, they said uh, that this, the finding of this study was supposedly that vaginal orgasms don't exist. And so for that reason, I'm going to say that that one is the fiction since you're saying that a new study has identified the source of vaginal orgasms. You all agree on number one, so we'll start there. Astronomers have discovered a pulsar that is 100 times brighter than theories predict a pulsar can be. You guys all think this one is science, and this one is science. Yes! A little surprised I didn't get any of you with this one. This is amazing. Especially Bob. It is. Bob would have appreciated. Yes. But you you read it. I'm sure you read it. Yes, you might have gotten me if, if I hadn't read it. Yeah, so, yeah, they found it, they're pretty sure it's a pulsar. It's, it has about the two solar masses, you know, that pulsars can have. Um, it's not a hundred times more massive, or it's not more massive than pulsars, um, are. Cause, you know, if pulsars get, they're, they're essentially rotating flashy neutron stars. If they get too heavy, they become black holes, right? But this one, this particular pulsar, this was discovered by, uh, the new star which is a nuclear spectroscopic telescope array led by Caltech's Fiona Harrison, that uh, this one's putting out the energy of about 10 million suns. It's shining pretty bright. Jeez. Yep. Previously, it was thought that only a black hole could generate that much energy. But they're pretty darn sure it's coming from a pulsar that's a lot lighter. And they're not sure how that can happen. It doesn't fit current models. That's that is amazing. It really yeah, is. It is. It's not. I mean, there, there's a specific limit that 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 something of a certain size. I mean, certain density and mass. Uh, there's a, there's a limit to how bright something like that could be, and this blows blows that out of the water. So that that's amazing. Uh, the, the idea that there could be something fundamentally wrong with how we think that they they can possibly behave is yeah. amazing. So, but it's just one. Right? It's just one object. Right. The question is, is this some kind of freaky, bizarre, rare situation? Or maybe a lot of these ultra-luminous X-ray yeah. sources out there that we're assuming are black holes, because only black holes can be that bright. Maybe right. a lot of they are pulsars, too. And now we're going to have to sure. take a look at them and see if they're really black holes or not. Right, and that's not to say that black holes don't exist. <laughs> so let me just throw that out there. Yeah, I mean, there are some things where we have verified that they're supermassive. Here, it's not. You know, it's not supermassive. But and it's actually, if I remember, Steve, this pulsar was actually not even that big for for a pulsar. Yeah. You know, it's like even surprisingly not massive. Right. So 
the bottom line is, is that it seems that there is a new mechanism for generating very luminous x-rays out there that physicists, astrophysicists have not figured out yet. Yes, yes. And so this, uh, or there's, there's some real problem with this, this recent data, but we'll obviously mm. this is going to have to get vetted and, you know, we'll have to look for more examples and, you know, physicists will have to try to figure out what the hell's going on here. All right. Very interesting. How close to the brightness of a black hole is this thing? Well, I mean, normally, uh, something this bright would have to be many, many solar masses. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think they specifically said yeah, they, hundreds they of solar masses, maybe, whereas it's only like two. You know, it's in this, it's in the pulsar range of mass, not in the black hole range of mass. Mm. So very, very interesting. All right. Let's go on to number two. Scientists have dated cave art in Indonesia to 40,000 years ago, older than any known art in Europe, where it was previously thought to first develop. Bob and Andy, you think this one is is the fiction. fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is... Say it. Science. Ah! Sorry, guys. God damn it. Sorry, this one is science. Oh, uh, bummer, bummer, bummer. Your, your guys' take on it was interesting. So the 40,000 years, while a little interesting, is not the really interesting bit here. The really interesting bit here is Indonesia. Indonesia, yes. Yeah. That's pretty Was I right about the preservation? No. Uh, nothing yeah. to do with volcanism. But <laughs> Too the, bad. the previous oldest art was something between thirty-five to thirty-eight thousand years old. Yeah, so already kind of in yeah, already kind of in the ballpark. It's just that the the real old cave art was all in Europe, and so it was thought that that's where it must have developed, where you know the, the first peoples that were you know doing the hand thing on the cave walls were were in Europe, but. This, uh, and this is a cave that they discovered in the 1950s. So we've known about this cave in Indonesia with some cave drawings and some of the handprints for a long time. Uh, but we, we had incorrectly dated it to about 10,000 years ago, 10,000 years old. Um, and then someone decided to use the uranium thorium dating method in order to, which has been around for a while, but no one bothered to apply it to this cave. And then suddenly, suddenly somebody said, hey, let's do that. And 39,900 years old, you know, roughly 40,000 years old. Um, the way that that dating method works is that um, the deposits on the cave walls, uh, if there's uranium in the nearby ore, it'll actually like suck the uranium into those deposits. And then uranium breaks down into thorium at a known rate over time. So it starts out as pure uranium and then slowly turns into thorium. So we could, we could come up with the minimum age that it, that it would have to be. And that minimum age is about 40,000 years old, which is four, four times older than they thought it was. Steve, my question now then is what dating method did they use initially? Why was that wrong? And what else could be wrong about other sites that may have used that dating method? Yeah, they didn't. Re- from what I could tell, they weren't That's really important. using a specific dating method. They were just assu- they were just dating the site, and they were and they also were assuming that the the cave paintings in that environment would not have lasted more than 10,000 years. So that's why they set uh, that as sort of the upper limit, but they were just wrong. So a lame dating method then. Okay, good. I yeah, feel it was a lame dating. Yeah, they, it better, wasn't, yeah. yeah, they didn't use some other dating method. It really was just they were, you know, like dating it, estimating it based upon archaeological, you know, inference, but it really wasn't a, this kind of, you know, dating method where you're using radioactive decay, you know. So this is the first real accurate dating method applied to this cave. 
Um, and, and also these deposits built up on top of the painting, right? That's why we say it's, it's, it's a minimum age. The painting is older than these deposits that we dated at 40,000 ah, years. Right. I mean, can't, right. can't they date the paint and to get a real they accurate can't, number? They can't, no. So that kind of changes our thinking about where cave painting art first developed among our human ancestors. It's interesting because you wonder, like, did it develop in more than one location simultaneously or, you know, what was the cultural path, you know? Did, did it really mm-hmm. come from one location and then spread out? And if so, what direction? Where did it start and then spread to? So, it, you know, it certainly didn't spread from – well, we don't have enough data points. Let's just say that. But based upon the evidence that we now currently have, you can't support the conclusion that it spread from Europe to Asia. It's You know, if anything, it spread the other way around, from Asia to Europe. But we obviously this could all be flipped again just by finding another cave. Let's go to the third one. Anatomists have, for the first time, positively identified the structures responsible for vaginal orgasm in women. And, of course, this one is the fiction. And, yes, and Rebecca, you are correct. My inspiration was for this one. She, she read it. She it read was it. the sexologist <laughs> Vincenzo and Julia Pupo. P U P P O P U P P O. That can't be what's actually happening right now. Could be Puppo. Puppo. Could be Puppo. Anatomy of sex: revision of the new anatomical terms used for the clitoris and the female orgasm by sexologists, published in Clinical Anatomy. Seems to be a serious piece of work. Now, it's not really a study, as far as I could tell. It's more of like a a review of the evidence. And the conclusion that their, their conclusion essentially is that certain concepts are not bad, are not backed by sufficient scientific evidence that we can say definitively that they're real. And specifically, they target the G spot, the vaginal orgasm. And they also say that the term clitoral orgasm is therefore unnecessary because there's no other kind of female orgasm. So they essentially say that we should just use the terms male orgasm and female orgasm, and that there essentially is no difference between what some people are calling a clitoral orgasm and what some people are calling a vaginal orgasm, that in fact, when you're having an an orgasm and and vaginal penetration is involved, it's still through, you know, stimulation of the clitoris. It's not due but that that's which is their which conclusion. isn't as localized as we think anyway. That was sort of my feeling about this, but again, like I I couldn't click through to the yeah. actual article, so I wasn't able to uh confirm this, but yeah, previous studies have suggested the idea that uh women who have quote unquote vaginal orgasms are in fact orgasming still through stimulation of the clitoris it's just that it's like indirect stimulation and so they think of it as a vaginal orgasm which i think is fine and that's you know again that's pro- previous studies have shown my main issue is like seeing the yeah, popular the lay reporting uh, of it yeah yeah which is uh guess what ladies <laughs> you thought you were having vaginal orgasm but you were wrong yeah this- to which point like a million women are just like, yeah, okay, no. <laughs> like, uh, appeal to and, popularity. And to them, you know, to many people, unfortunately, will confirm that sort of uh, negative stereotype of scientists who know absolutely nothing swooping in to say that their data directly contradicts what many women actually experience in their day-to-day lives. Yeah, this is which more is an, incredibly it's more, unfortunate. It's more an interpretation of the experience and not a denial of the experience. Right. 
And exactly. This is a very dry anatomical paper. You know, they're talking about the developmental biology of the clitoris and what the structures are, where they come from developmentally. You know, there really isn't any internal organ that you can say is an internal clitoris. It doesn't really know such thing, you know, just biologically as that. Whatever. I'm I'm happy because I got one. Right. <laughs> you got it right, so you're so, happy. Stop I should just shut up. Jay, <laughs> <laughs> right. you're going to give us a quote. I have a quote sent in by a listener named Jared Olson. Jared is from Australia. What's so interesting about Australia, you might wonder? I said I'm so jealous of you guys. My colleague uh, <laughs> Mar- Marsh is going to that conference. Well, there you go. I, but I, we'll we'll show him a fabulous time just to rub it in. Oh my gosh, he's going to have the time of his life. (laughs) All right, ready? The journalistic tradition so exalts novelty and flashy discovery as reputable and newsworthy that standard accounts for the public not only miss the usual activity of science, but also, and more unfortunately, convey a false impression about what drives research. As a quote by. Stephen J. Gould! One of my favorite science communicators of all time, honestly. Yeah, he, he it, lost him too soon. Yeah. yeah, I know. Very sad. But actually, he, he actually lived a, he, he lived a long time with his cancer. We actually had him for a, from that perspective, we had him for a lot longer. But anyway, what's interesting is just recently this very idea is resurfacing. I've heard, you know, I've heard people talking about the fact that um, and I can't, I, forgive me, I can't remember the source, that the, that, uh, journalists tend, tend to present and to report on the scientific outliers without putting them into context, right? So it's like the, they, they report the news story that goes against the grain, because that's what's interesting. It's also the ones that are the most likely not to be replicable and not to be true. And that's, that's basically what Stephen Jay Gould is saying. So he sort of recognized this pattern a long time ago. Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for suffering me. I do appreciate it. And thank you for... You were great. Oh, thanks. You did a great job, Andy. You really did. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Steve, thank you for the extra time you're going to have to put into the edit as well. Uh, But it is 3.30 in the morning now, and I am absolutely f***ing whacked. (laughs) <laughs> I love that so much. Oh, God. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for joining me. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. <laughs>